Every year I'm honored to participate in our local Awana uh, Pump the Pastor Night. If you don't know what that is, the kids get to send questions in that I answer. They are often interesting. In fact, they're usually brilliant questions, the kinds that adults should ask but forget how to. This year an 11-year-old asked a particularly difficult question. 11-year-old boy asked me, why did God let his mommy die? It's a great question. It's one of those really tough ones. First thing I did was I hurt with him. I cried with him. You know, Scripture tells us to first weep with those who weep. And then I told him about my old teacher, uh, Jerry Bridges. Jerry was 14 when his mom died. Many years later, Jerry wrote an excellent book titled Trusting God. I was very blessed to spend an entire week once uh, going through that book with Jerry and a small group of leaders. In fact, the rest of my answer to that child was greatly drawn from my experience and from Jerry's fantastic work. I highly recommend this book to you. There are copies in our book nook for purchase. What follows this morning is my answer to that boy with some more filling that is appropriate for this setting. Any valid answer to questions like that one asked by our 11-year-old friend have to begin with the headline I put in your notes. This is where we must start. Open your bulletin you got when you came in. Look on the left-hand side. You'll see the headline, Life Hurts. Life Hurts. A few years ago, Professor Mark McGinnis wrote this in Dallas uh, Theological Seminary's Kindred Spirit magazine. He said, In October of 2010, I was diagnosed with trigeminal neuralgia, a nerve disorder characterized by episodes of searing pain that affects either side of the face. In my case, TN affects the left side. Besides cluster headaches, TN is the most painful condition known to the medical profession. I'm told that even childbirth and kidney stones cause less agony. TN is so excruciating that it has been dubbed the suicide disease. Only a handful of procedures manage the condition, albeit temporarily, and only one offers a cure. My wife, Joy, and I chose the cure, a microvascular decompression, MVD. It's a type of invasive brain surgery, the only procedure that offers a chance for a permanent fix with a, get this, 95% success rate. My MVD was scheduled for April. A world-renowned neurosurgeon led my operating team. I was treated at a premier hospital. A company of people from coast to coast fervently prayed for my success. I had the best possible prognosis. All the odds favored success. But afterwards, as I lay in ICU, among the numerous IVs and beeps of various monitors, I realized I was in the 5%. Two months later, I underwent a second surgical procedure that couldn't heal permanently, but offered a 90% success rate for pain alleviation. In the recovery room, the neurosurgeon met Joy and me. He explained everything had gone as planned. He was very pleased, and from his perspective, the chance of success was high. But even through the facial numbness of surgery, the pain came roaring back. With tears, we realized that we were in the 10%. Another medical failure. Hopes crushed a certain future with tremendous pain. When surgery fails, when the prognosis cannot be any worse, when intense pain is the only certainty, how do you face the rest of life? How do you get out of bed day after day when the only thing certain is feeling a feeling is pain or the dread of more pain? And these are only the questions that trouble the body. What about the emotions of the soul, the deep disappointment that threatens to turn to despair, the plague of loneliness, the anxiety and fear that a life once enjoyed is over forever, close quote. Today we start a new series about when life hurts. 
Here's the premise. The premise is why. Why, why are we studying this? Here's why. The problem of pain and evil torments the thinking of humanity. If improperly understood, listen, if improperly understood, it can lead to shipwrecked faith, cynicism, disengagement, and the inability to use our powers for good. Since we have all suffered and either are hurting or will in the future, we need to figure out how to flourish when life hurts. And this is not just an elementary problem, is it? It extends through all of life. In fact, I don't know if you found this. I have noticed that these questions become more difficult in some ways the more one grows. Right? Read with me. Solomon's great summary. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. You take the underlined text. Verse 18. For with much wisdom is much sorrow. As knowledge increases, grief increases. Right? Handling that reality is what our series is all about. Look at the theme. Here's the theme of our study. God sovereignly guides his people through times of doubt, difficulty, danger, and death. An anthropocentric, that means a human-focused response to such hurt, usually determines that God is thus not God or not good. It's one of the things we conclude. He's either not God or he's not good. Tragically, this false perspective, there's three things. It makes good a human determination, which effectively eliminates any true standard of goodness. There is no good then. Secondly, it leads to almost inevitable frustration and bitterness, and it limits our understanding and experience to, to this material world in the brief years of this temporal life. By contrast, the biblical solution is simply profound. To better know the sovereign triune God, to engage with Him, and as a result, to trust Him more. That's why James chapter 1 tells us, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let your steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Life hurts. Jerry Bridges' quote in our notes acknowledges that. It also makes clear the bottom line upon which any healthy response must be built. Read Jerry's quote from his book, Trusting God. All people, believers as well as unbelievers, experience anxiety, frustration, heartache, and disappointment. Some suffer intense pain and catastrophic tragedies, but that which should distinguish the suffering of believers from unbelievers is the confidence that our suffering is under the control of an all-powerful and all-loving God. Our suffering has meaning and purpose in God's eternal plan, and He brings or allows to come into our lives only that which is for His glory and our good. Close quote. With that foundation, let's answer the the question in your notes. Look at the question. How can we find hope in affliction? In the midst of a life that hurts, how can we find any hope? To begin the answer, open your Bible to Romans chapter 5. It's right after the book of Acts in your New Testament, just before 1 Corinthians, Romans 5. Let's read the first five verses. Therefore, we'll come back to the therefore. Since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have also obtained access through Him by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also rejoice in our afflictions because we know that affliction produces endurance. Endurance produces proven character, and proven character produces hope. This hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. In the middle of the hurt, know that you have peace by God's decree. That is the amazing lesson in verse 1. Because of God's grace in Jesus and our faith in Him, Christians are declared righteous. Look, look, we are with God. You see that? 
We are with him. We have peace with God. Sure, other things matter. They do. But nothing matters as much as peace with God. As a Christian, I have that which matters most. I have it eternally. Nothing I endure compares to what Jesus endured to grant me peace with God. Look at the context. I told you we'd come back to the therefore, okay? We started with a therefore. It means we need to ask what it's there for. Look at the verse just before our passage. He, Jesus, was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. I have trespassed. I deserve much more pain than I could ever endure. That's what I deserve. But Jesus, holy God himself, died for us. And he rose from the dead, justifying us. He made us right, gave us peace with God, a peace that passes understanding and never goes away. Listen to some more of Dr. McGinnis's story. As I wrestle with these questions and contemplate a life with pain as a constant companion, I'm reminded of certain truths that orient my view of the future. Unfortunately, these thoughts do not eliminate physical pain, but they may encourage the soul. Failure to alleviate affliction does not mean that God does not love you. While we may feel this way, the truth is much different. The Apostle Paul anticipates such emotions in the midst of difficulties. In Romans chapter 5, he teaches us of our peace in afflictions. And in chapter 8, he asks a rhetorical question of those Christians in Rome. He asks, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall troubles or hardship or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? That's Romans 8.35. Paul's question is meant to elicit an emphatic no from his readers. Paul was convinced that nothing, not even surgical failure, could separate a believer from the love of God, which is ours in Christ Jesus our Lord. All God's people said, how can we find hope in affliction? Know that Christians have peace by God's decree. And look at verse 2. Know that you have access to God himself in grace. Not because of myself, but because of God's grace. I stand in the very presence of God. Even Moses couldn't do that. He had to be hidden from God's direct presence. We do not because we have what Moses looked forward to in faith. We have direct access to the Father through Jesus the Son and the Holy Spirit. We have no intermediary. Since Jesus has raised us with him, we have direct access to God. We are adopted as children of God who have direct access to his throne. Think this through. Think this through. This means that God is my ever-present help in time of need. It means that I can complain to God. I can. He's a big boy. He can handle it. He loves it. He gives me access. I can wrestle with him. I can cry out to him, and I will be heard just as surely as any human parent hears their child's cry. It means that God loves me. Many passages in the Bible remind us of this. God loves his people. When I access the Lord, I am not talking to some cold, far-off idol. I am speaking to the Father who gives me access because he loves me. Look at how David stated it, Psalm 56. You've taken account of my wanderings. Put my tears in your bottle. And then in verse 9 he says, This I know, that God is for me. Now, folks, this was penned during a time when David was enduring very unfair pain, persecuted wandering, and the tear bottle he described is one of these. This is a really wonderful uh, gift given to me by an archaeologist friend in Israel. Uh, let me describe to you what this is. In a few Mediterranean cultures, there was a really singular practice that developed during the Iron Age. By the way, it lasted all the way through the early Roman Age. And that was in these certain cultures, they would, they would develop these bottles or jars, and they were called tear jars, and they were used for collecting tears when someone was really grieving hard. 
So when you're afflicted in life, you would take your bottle and you would cry. It was, a, it was a way of going through grief, of suffering, and you would cry into your jar. But here's what you need to know. This is very important. These were singular. No one ever used anyone else's tear jar. Okay? It, was, it was a one-use item. So my tear bottle would never be used by anyone else. Yours would never be used by me. With that in mind, look at your text. Look what David says. God cares so much for his servant that God collects the human's tears in God's own bottle. That's what access to God means. It means that he feels our pains himself. He is so much for his people. He grants unfettered access, feeling our hurts as his own. Atop the right side of our notes, we find a third thing that's very important in this text. A third thing that's really important about our hope, and this is one that I personally find difficult. Know that you stand in grace. Verse 2 specifically says we stand in grace. That means we don't stand according to our own flesh, according to our own natural power. When I, I, I don't know if anybody else is like this. When I face affliction, I have a tendency to default to my own skills, my own tendencies, good and bad, to, to double down on my own effort. Anybody else like that? When you face affliction, you tend to refer to your own flesh. Anybody else like that? Okay, I'm not totally alone. It's not all bad, but the bad part is that I forget to work hard by God's empowerment. I forget to rest in Him. I forget to move by grace. Possibly the best description I have ever read of this tendency to operate by the, flex, by the flesh when you're in affliction. Possibly the best I've ever read was written by a Chicago Cubs fan. After all, who knows more about suffering than a Cubs fan, right? In the Chicago Cubs, the story of a curse, Rich Cohen describes this. This is really brilliant writing. He says, the smug, disgusting air of a supposedly self-made man. The smug, disgusting air of a supposedly self-made man. This is one of the very sad things we see often in Christianity. The... Folks, probably the only thing as bad as a therapy that doesn't work in alleviating our pain is something that does. Follow me here. After a lot of pain, a lot of disappointment, a lot of thought, we try something new. And, the, and it works. This time, hooray, that's wonderful. But what do we do? What do we do? We then stand atop that victory convinced that we climbed that mountain by our own strength and our own cleverness, right? We go online and talk about our solutions and how brilliant we were to think of this. As a father of severely ill children, I have seen this a lot. As, as a servant leader to a very high-performing group of people in one of the wealthiest places in human history, I see this a lot. As a Christian who has played a small part in flat-out miraculous events, I have seen this. Let's see it no more. Let's stand instead in grace. Oh, let's climb hard. Let, let's fight hard against all of our afflictions, but let's do it by God's grace and for His glory. All God's people said, amen. Speaking of glory, look at the next help in our affliction. Know that you will share His glory. If you trust Jesus, you are guaranteed that this life, however painful, is followed by a perfect, glorious eternity. Paul addresses this head on. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, read with me, verses 16 and 17. Therefore, he says, and by the way, the context of the therefore is because of God's grace. Okay, because of God's grace, therefore, we do not give up. Can we do that again? That's really significant. We do not give up. Therefore, we do not give up. 
Even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incredible eternal weight of glory. Amen. Rich Cohen, our Cubs fan, described his experience during game one of the, night of the uh, 2016 National League Championship Series. He, uh, we're going to pick up the story at the point where the Dodgers had tied the game. I, I captured it on the slide there for you. And Cohen says this, listen, the game was tied, but that's not how it felt to me. It felt as if we were a dozen runs behind and the cause was hopelessly lost and the slaughter rule would have to be invoked. What can I say? It's the nature of my condition, the disease incubated by 40 summers at Wrigley Field. I'm a Cubs fan. I go to the park expecting to lose, curious only about how it will happen. <laughs> but the fans in the upper deck that night, especially those under 30, did not seem downcast or forlorn. In fact, more than a few seemed confident, even happy. They began to chant. I could not make it out at first, then I could. We don't quit. We don't quit. We don't quit. I laughed. The fools, I said to myself. Do they know nothing of history? Of course we quit. That's who we are. We are the team that has not won a championship in 108 years. It's often eliminated from the playoffs by late August that always finds a way to not get it done. Woebegone, befuddled, bewildered. We are the Cubs. <laughs> you, Christian, you're, you're those people in the upper deck. You're confidently saying, we don't quit. Not because, of, not because of your strength, but because you are guaranteed glory. And just for the record, those fans were right. The Cubs won that series, and they won the World Series. Glory. Now, read verses 3 through 4 again. 3 through 4. Not only that, but we also rejoice in our afflictions. Did that say we rejoice because of our afflictions and we're excited about pain? No, no, it's ridiculous. That's absurd. It says we rejoice in it. We rejoice through it. Very significant difference. We rejoice in our afflictions because we know that affliction produces what, everybody? Endurance. Endurance produces proven character, and proven character produces what, everyone? Hope. How can I find hope in affliction? Well, know the way that we grow. As my character develops, I grow in hopefulness. This is one of my grave concerns for the era in which we live. God's formula for our growth is very clear. Affliction produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. But in this 21st century, I keep bumping into Christians who sincerely think, sincerely think this is the road to maturity. Fear, I have to be afraid all the time because that can lead to pain avoidance. And then if I can avoid pain, that will lead to no conflict and that might give me hope. We could not be further from God's plan. Not in our parenting, in, in our church service, in our relationships. We are cowards. And we absurdly think that that is how one grows. That formula is actually the best way to stifle growth. This horrible reality of what we keep running into led my old acquaintance Andy McQuitty to write a book called The Way to Brave. It's a really good book. I want you to, I want you to listen to some of Andy's wisdom here. The Way to Brave, story time, boys and girls, story time. The Way to Brave by Andy McQuitty. Uh, we'll pick it up on page 107. He says, Jacob's wrestling match is a spiritual parable of how God works in human hearts. In case you don't know it, you can go back and read it in Genesis. Jacob uh, has this wrestling match with God. By the way, it's why God changes his name to Israel, one who wrestles with God. God always wants us to wrestle with him in our hurt. Uh, 
But Jacob, of course, very full of himself, he wrestles all night with this theophany, this appearance of God. And he he seems, by the account, to think he's doing really well. He's wrestling all night long. He's just doing all his moves and wrestling. And then all of a sudden, and the Hebrew word is a very light word, God just touches his hip. And and Jacob falls apart. Okay, God just touches him, and he falls apart. All right, that's the story. Instead of vaporizing us for our sin, God wrestles with us through the vicissitudes of life, breaking us of our pride so he can bless us with his power. F.B. Meyer puts it this way, whatever it is that enables a soul whom God designs to bless to stand out against him, God will touch. It may be the pride of wealth or of influence or of affection, but it will not be spared. God will touch it. It may be something as natural as a sinew, but if it robs a man of spiritual blessing, God will touch it. God will touch it. Not necessarily the wealth or the influence of the affection, but the pride anchored in those things. That's a kind-hearted gesture from a loving Heavenly Father, not a threat from a heartless ogre. Jacob needed God's touch, and he would be grateful for it all his life. In fact, he was so grateful for it, that's why his offspring did not eat that particular part of the sinew of the hip in honor of remembering how their ancestor needed God's touch. Same with young David. The way the Bible describes him, David was sitting duck for the ravages of pride and the inevitable downfall of illusory superiority and the inevitable curse of the winner. Remember the prophet's physical description of young David in 1 Samuel 16, 12? He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Now, Andy writes, put David's movie star mug alongside his other known attributes. He was powerfully athletic, a born leader, whip smart, a practitioner of the poet's art, and played a mean electric guitar, a harp, rather. He was the ancient equivalent of a professional football player, rock star, thespian, and movie star all rolled into one. Talent, good-looking young buck like that, why even think he needed God? Pride goes before a fall. And David had all the inducements to a world-class pride that would have precipitated a catastrophic fall before he even got started. That's why God mercifully, lovingly, and graciously broke David's pride and humbled him as an outcast, possibly illegitimate son, relegated by a dismissive father to the sheepfold. God had big plans for David and didn't want pride to make him fall. David's pride was broken early. And his resulting humble desire that God get all glory later gave him confidence that even though he had to face Goliath, it was really just him facing Goliath on God's behalf. Knowing he was weak but God was strong made David dauntless. And it will also make Christians and churches brave as we embrace our brokenness and pursue God's glory. All God's people said, amen. Finally, know that this hope won't let you down. Look again at verse 5. This hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Dr. McGinnis finished his wonderful article that we've been reading from with that verse and this comment. I liked it so much I put it in your notes. Disappointment, discouragement, and pain accompany the person living with a broken body or mind. There may be an apprehension that the pain may even get worse. But in the midst of brokenness, we can believe that there is a God who loves us who is present with us in our suffering, who is our strength and physical weakness, and who has promised a day is coming that includes no tears of failure, no more tears. These are truths that will not fail, even when surgery does.
Now, verse 5 cements this in two awesome foundations. This is so cool. We will not be let down because our hope is based in God's love and our hope is secured by the Holy Spirit himself. I cannot express how immovable and permanent these two things are. God himself with us and with us in his love. Now, I know what you're asking in that um, Einstein voice that you use in your head. You're saying, so what does that mean for me? How does that change life for me with all my conflicts and my afflictions, yeah? Good question. Thank you so much for asking. Um, let me answer you with a question, Einstein. When you were ill as a child, did it make any difference to you to know that someone that you trusted and loved was watching over you? Um, anybody here, when, when you were hurt or sick as a child, feel better knowing that a, a parent, a doctor, or a friend, somebody was watching over you? Raise your hand if that made you feel better. Yeah. That's the difference Romans 5.5 5 makes. Because of God's love and God's spirit, we know we're not alone. God, God is with us, and he cares deeply for us. We know that God has a purpose in all things. We're going to see one day that the Lord was using all the bad for ultimate good. We know that affliction is temporal. This season will come to an end, either in this life or the next. One of our elders, Randall Satchel, was praying through my notes. He sent me a great observation about our hope that won't let us down. Look what Randall wrote me. He said, Wayne, for those who deny God, suffering only magnifies despair. Because those who believe the material word is all that exists, worship and hope for nothing greater than comforts of this life. But the Christian understands such a materialistic worldview is spiritual deception. And here he quotes 1 John 2, For all that is of the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father but is from the world. For the Christian, suffering teaches us not to trust the things of the world, to magnify our hope in God, to daily live out our joy, namely that Christ is much greater than this present darkness, which is quickly passing away. Amen. I've told some of you before, my mother had a standard statement. Whenever we were sick or laid up, mom would come in the room at some point and she would look at us in a quiet moment and she would say, don't waste a good illness. What she meant by that was I needed to take the opportunity to learn the things that we can only learn when we are beset. Of course, that's not what people usually do. The norm is we waste our time on questions like these. Why does God allow bad things to happen? Will God allow me to shoulder any more than I can bear? Why me? When will this end? What have I done to deserve this? Is God punishing me for some sin I don't see? Why didn't God protect me? On and on and on. Now, those questions are all normal. They're all normal, but they're frankly pagan. Listen carefully. Those questions come from a human-centered mindset where we're in charge and we can use God like a machine. Paganism. If we put the right things in, then we are entitled to the things we want in return. That's what paganism is. If we put in the right formula, we must get what we desire. Everybody starts there. Don't feel guilty about that. That's okay. Please don't stop there. Instead of that paganism, let's learn. Think. What can we learn from this affliction? There are many things. We're going to quickly cover four of them this morning. First, we learn how to be strong in the Lord. Look, 2 Corinthians, beautiful, beautiful passage. 2 Corinthians 12. So that I would not exalt myself, says Paul, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to torment me, so I would not exalt myself. Concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. 
Therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me. So I take pleasure in weaknesses, insults, catastrophes, persecutions, and in pressures because of Christ. For when I'm weak, then I am strong. It is pain that teaches me dependence. When I get weary and I ache, as I see my limitations, I begin to rely on the one who is stronger and always upholds me. He teaches me to be strong in him. If you're able, I want you to try something. I want you to try something. Put, put the stuff in your lap. Put your, your Bible and your notebook away. Uh, set them on the floor or whatever, and get, get, your, get your hands clear, okay? Put your hands down on your chair like this, all right? And then if you're able, if you're not, that's fine. If you're able, I want you to lift yourself up above your chair like that. Pick yourself up. Come on, Danny, you can do that, all right? Now, some of us can do this, not many, but even those who can't, can't hold it very long, can we? Eventually, we collapse back down. And when we cannot hold ourselves up any longer, what happens? What do we fall on? Your chair. That's really important. Folks, if we had to hold ourselves up the whole time that I taught, our, our lessons would be, well, they'd be even shorter than liberal, liberal mainline denominations. It'd be terrible. Um, it had to be really quick. But when we can't hold ourselves anymore, then we relax, and what God has given us puts us in a position to learn. We can learn for a lot longer because God has given us these chairs. We don't have to hold ourselves up. In the same way, when we admit that we're in need, then we are strong for the real learning that is before us. This is why Jerry Bridges, who lost his dear mommy when he was still a child, Jerry could write and mean the quote that we read earlier. What can we learn from affliction? We learn to be strong in the Lord and to bear more fruit. Read with me. John chapter 15, uh, verses 1 and 2. Jesus is speaking. He says, I, Jesus, am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Literally, by the way, the Greek text says lifts up. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. All right. Anybody here, anybody here lived long enough that you have experienced God lifting you up out of sin and muck in your life? Anybody lived long enough you've experienced God lifting you? Okay, it's a, it's a beautiful thing. How about God's pruning? Parts of your life, good, good things that to you appeared fruitful were taken away. Raise your hand if you have ever experienced God's cutbacks. Okay. I ache with you over that. I know very personally, I know how that hurts. And yet, let me, let me ask you this. Anyone who raised their hand that you've gone through God's cutbacks, have you lived long enough to see how miraculously, unexpectedly, wonderfully, that pruning actually made you more productive? Anybody experienced that? Okay, raise them really high. Keep your hands up. Everybody look around. Talk to these people. Talk to these people. They, they will help you understand how affliction actually leads to more fruit. And by the way, talking to you will help them too. Because if they're anything like me, they, they tend to forget what they've learned whenever they get into another season of pruning. And it can be good to remind them. Randall Satchel also sent me a really wise note about this, about bearing fruit. Randall wrote me and said, um, the question, how can a good God allow suffering, assumes a life free of suffering is better for every human than a life with suffering. That is simply childish thinking. What benefit would there be from an endlessly sunny day? 
What advantage could there possibly be of no night, no rain, no cold? Even popular psychology understands this at some level. Popular psychology quotes, no pain, what? No gain. The greatest lessons come when we fail, etc., etc. Randall is right. We also learn holiness from affliction. Brilliant logic here. Listen to this. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 7 through 11. Endure suffering as a discipline. God's dealing with you as sons. For what son is there a father does not discipline? But if you're without discipline, which all receive, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had natural fathers discipline us and we respected them. Shouldn't we submit even more to the father of spirits and live? For they discipline us for a short time based on what seemed good to them. But he does it for our benefit so we can share his what, everybody? Holiness. No discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it yields the fruit of peace and what, everybody? righteousness to those who have been trained by it. We become more righteous, we become more holy by working with God through affliction. This was the best part of coaching. And it was the hardest part of coaching for me because unlike God, I confused love of my athletes with lack of pain. Right? I, I, I love these guys, I didn't really want to hurt them, but I learned that if I didn't make them hurt in practice, they would be unprepared for the glory of victory later. Friends, this life is just practice. That's all this is. It's just practice. So let's learn holiness so we can enjoy great rewards and effectiveness in the glory of our sure victory that is to come. Amen? And like a sports team, we also learn fellowship. This is the last of the four we'll cover today. 2 Corinthians, again, listen to chapter 1, verse 4. He comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction through the comfort we ourselves receive from God. Whenever we suffer, you've noticed this, right? We are drawn to those Christians who suffered before us. And we're being prepared for those who will share these afflictions after us. Since Jana and I had a child who spent her first four months in intensive care and who stopped breathing 21 times, Jana and I leaned on friends who had been through similar battles. And in all the years since then, we have been the ones that other people have leaned on when they have been going through that horrible trial. And by the way, let me take just a second and applaud you in this. Church, you are such a rich mind of wisdom in this. I see this all the time. You guys, you, you take a trial through which God has brought you, and then you turn and you walk with others through similar pain. I see it, abuse, depression, unemployment, loss, hurt, regret, anxiety, over and over and over. I watch you show the fellowship of 2 Corinthians 1. Well done. Fellowship. We learn fellowship through affliction. Now, let me show you this. This is really awesome. John shows this beautifully, really subtly, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation, kingdom, and endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of God's word and the testimony about Jesus. Okay? John's marginalized. He's been exiled for his faith. And he writes an incredibly important book on God's command. And he starts with this sentence, his address to the people. Look what he says. Look at partner. The original Greek word, synkoinonos. Synkoinonos is a, is a form of the great Greek term koinonia. Uh, th this word group describes great closeness. This is a brotherhood and sisterhood of two-way participation, of, of two-way life sharing. John's teaching us here. He's showing us that suffering and tribulation make one a fellow sharer with Jesus and with his people. Romans 5 taught us how to find hope in affliction. And resting in hope, we can also learn in affliction. Among many other things, we learn, we learn fellowship, holiness, to bear fruit, 
and how to be strong in the Lord. Now, of course, that brings up the logical question that you're opposing privately in your Dr. Spock voice. <clears throat> Get my eyebrow up. Should we then just wallow in hurt so we can grow more? I mean, is it logical for Christians to be masochists? Hmm? What do you think, Captain Kirk, what do you think? Is it logical? No, no, it's not. It's actually an illogical breach of the Bible. Should we just wallow in hurt? Simple place to see the scriptural no is in one little passage, Luke chapter 22. Luke 22, verses 41 and 42. This is the Garden of Gethsemane, just before Jesus is arrested and killed. And he withdrew from him about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Look at that. As we noted earlier, Jesus is God. But he is also completely human. And as the only sinless human, he shows us the proper response to affliction. He asks for it to be removed. Straight, simple, just, Lord, please take this horrible pain away. But he trusts the Father's plan. If the cup cannot pass, Jesus submits to the Father's will. So when you face a wretched situation, which many currently do and all will eventually, be like Jesus. Work hard in prayer to have it changed and do so trusting God. Here's how my old teacher Jerry Bridges closed his book. He said this, because God is at work in our lives through adversity, we must learn to respond to what he's doing. That does not mean we should not use all legitimate means at our disposal to minimize the effects of adversity. It means we should accept from God's hand the success or failure of those means as he wills and at all times seek to learn whatever he might be teaching us, close quote. Let's pray about that. Father, I pray for myself, I pray for my brothers and sisters that we will learn, that we will learn in our affliction. Oh, I know, eternity is unthinkably awesome and this is such a short life of practice, but it doesn't seem that way to us. So we beg you for your help that you can help us learn and that we will understand what real hope is in you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.